0: one let's do the smart thing and let's pray heavenly father good to be here this morning thankful for the time of just fellowship and encouragement and worship Uh, as always we lord pray that you would teach we would listen and just lead and guide and direct in all ways in your name amen If you weren't with us last week, we started a new study in the book of Acts. and We thought this is important to get into Acts here is because there's a lot of things going on that we're praying about as a church. And I mentioned these last week and I'll mention them again so that way you guys can be in prayer with us. We firmly believe what it says in the book of Proverbs where there's no vision the people perish. And we want to make sure we have a vision from what the Lord is calling us to do as a church and as a body. As some of you may know, Pastor Rich is going to be retiring next spring. Uh, Pastor Rich is almost 90. <laughs> I don't even know why I said that. As it's coming out of the mouth, it's like, don't say that. And I still went ahead and said that. Uh, Rich is going to be retiring next spring, and we're praying about what does that look like. Do we uh, hire someone to replace Rich? Do we stop and say, okay, church, this is an opportunity for us to not replace Rich, and we're going to... um, as a body of Christ, use the gifts that God gave us, step up and see what happens with that. And then that money that has saved the financial there, a couple different options. We can invest more in missions. We can invest more in outreach. Uh, we've been praying about possibly doing some additions to the back for Sunday school classrooms. I know a lot of you don't see this at the 10 o'clock because you're up here with me. But some of the classrooms in the back on Sunday mornings have uh, like up to 28 kids. That's a lot of kids back there. So we're kind of praying about what that looks like. There's also a group. We've been doing the small group studies uh, for the last few years now. There's a group over in Signet that really feel led to have a more established uh, church over there rather than a small group. And so we've been praying about that. Lord, what does that look like? Do we need to go, you know, plant something over there? So these are the things that we've been praying about. We'd ask you guys to go ahead and pray along with us. And we thought it was important to get into Acts here to say, okay, what, what does this look like? This is the church that we want to be. And this is what I asked you last week. Because we're going to do the verse-by-verse teaching through Acts. But we're going to do it a little differently. We're going to hit some major themes. And what I want you to do is just imagine that you were just called by the Lord to start a church. But the only thing that you had were the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and the Epistles. That's all you had. You would not been to church. You'd never grew up in a church. And if you just read this book, this is all you read was the Bible. What would the church actually look like? And that's what we want to do. We want to do that. Now, as we go through Acts, we understand that there is some cultural things in there. They went to the temple daily. They met at Solomon's porch. We get that. But at the same time, the central themes here, what the church is supposed to be doing, we want to do. And what you see here is the emphasis... Of what the church is supposed to be. So please keep that in prayer as you're going through this with me. And I hope that you're blessed by that. And I really want you to focus on verses 40 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. We're going to get to that today. And we're really going to hit that hard next week. But I really want you to pray about that and what that looks like. Okay? So with that being said, we're going to pick it up here in Acts chapter 1. We left off last week at verse 14. And with them being in prayer and being in one accord. And we talked about that word one accord. The oneness the oneness in the body of Christ, and we'll get to that more later. So it starts in verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, all together the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling." In Jerusalem, so the field is called in their own language, a cow d'ama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us with his resurrection. And they proposed two Joseph called whose who is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. So what happens here is Peter stands up. And he says, we need to see the word of God fulfilled. This is important, verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. What you see here in the book of Acts is an emphasis on God's word. This is so vital, so vital. Most churches teach from the Bible. But we want to be a church that actually teaches the Bible. We want that emphasis to be on God's word. And what Peter is doing here is he says that he feels that these scriptures are showing that they needed to replace Judas. And they give an account here of how Judas died in verses 18 and 19. And so what happens is they're going to go ahead and replace Judas. Now, you can get into a debate with this, and it really doesn't matter. Some people say the best replacement for Judas to be the next one of the 12 was Paul. Paul obviously had a very visible ministry, a very impactful ministry. But they go ahead here and they choose Matthias. Now, Matthias is referred to as one of the 12 later on. The debate doesn't really matter because the God is moving puzzle pieces wherever he wants to go. So they reach this point of saying that we need to replace Judas. And so they're going to pray over these two individuals here. And they pray over Joseph, not his stepdad, but another man by the name of Joseph and Matthias. But look at their resumes, quite the resume. Verse 21, these men have accompanied us all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us. That's a pretty impressive resume. This guy had been with them the whole public ministry. If you remember correctly, as you read through the Gospels, you had the 12, the 12 apostles, but you had numerous other disciples too that were following along with them, and these guys had been there for the entire time. So they get ready to choose, and how do they choose? Verse 26, and they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They cast their lots. What does that look like? It could have been done a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's literally a group of sticks in your hand, And you can't see how long they are. And you say, whoever grabs the shortest stick could be something as simple as that. Some people believe back during the Old Testament times that the high priest had this bag. He would have a black stone and a white stone in it. And so when you wanted to know God's will, you would go consult the high priest. And the high priest would bring out this bag. And you would say, should we go attack the Philistines? And the high priest would stick his hand in the bag. He'd pull out the white stone. And white says, yes, go attack. And that's how they made a lot of decisions. You see this in the book of Jonah. You see this in the book of Esther, this idea of casting lots. Now, it's kind of interesting. In Proverbs 16, it says that man may cast the lots, but every decision is really of the Lord. God is sovereign. We've got to remember that. Now, the problem is we see this in verse 26. We kind of like this. Can you imagine having your own little personal Jesus bag that you took with you everywhere you go? You had two stones in it. So somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I just want to let you know there's a new position at work. Would you like to do it? I don't know. Let me go get my Jesus bag. And so you would just say, Lord, do you want me to take the job? You'd stick your hand in the bag. you pull out the white stone. White says yes. I'm going to take the bag. And every decision would be based through this Jesus bag. Now, that sounds nice in some ways. But the problem with that is you've built a relationship with a bag. You've not built a relationship with the Lord. And so what we have today is so much better. Because you get to consult God himself. See, remember back in the Old Testament, God's dwelling place was in the Holy of Holies, in the uttermost part of the tabernacle or the temple. You weren't allowed to go in there. I wasn't allowed to go in there. No one could go in there. So what would happen is one day a year, the high priest, that's all, could go in there one day a year. That was the relationship they had with God. The Bible makes it very clear, as we talked about last week, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself has chosen to live inside of you. When you stop and think about that, that is amazing. Just write these verses down. John 14, John 14, 26 says this, Jesus speaking. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I said to you. Then he says in John 16, verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. When Jesus left this earth, ascended, he gave us the Holy Spirit, so God Himself lives inside of us. So now, when you have a decision, you get to go boldly to the throne of God yourself, and you get to go ask the Creator of the universe, What do you want me to do? What do you think? Now, the problem is we live in this fast food mentality of can't I just have a bag of stones? It's a lot simpler. Because people come up to me and they say, James, i got a big decision coming up. And I'd be like, have you been praying about it? I've been praying more than ever. Okay, have you been fasting about it? I've been fasting. Have you been in the scriptures? I've been in the word more than ever. So what's the Lord said? I don't know. I keep praying. I keep fasting. I keep reading. And I get no answer. And I stop and I think, I bet you God loves it. You're spending so much time with him. More time than you ever have had before. So he probably says The longer I wait for the answer, the more you're going to talk to me. Because if you're like me, let's be honest, you pray, you fast, you seek, you're in the Word, you get the answer, Lord, thank you, and you just move on. You're building a relationship with God, you're building a relationship through the Holy Spirit. And so it is to our advantage to have this. Would the bag be simpler if we all had our own bag? But back during Bible times, if you were just a typical farmer and you wanted to go up to the temple, the high priest ask a question, no, you're not going to get that audience. You're not going to get that access. There's no way. We have God himself that lives inside of us. Never, ever forget that. What an amazing blessing that is. So that's why Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter where you go, he's leading you, guiding you, comforting you, empowering you. It's an amazing thing. So we don't cast lots anymore because why? We have the Holy Spirit now. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, one accord. This is such an important word. We saw that back in verse 14 of chapter 1. We see it here at the beginning of chapter 2. We see it at the end of chapter 2. We talked about it last week. This idea of a group of people working together with one eternal goal and purpose to see souls get saved in Christ. Never forget this simple fact. The only thing that matters is where people are going to spend eternity. We have been called to go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all things. That's what we're called to do. And the only way we can do that is through the leading and the guiding and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be one accord. Now, the problem is we have, like, individual Christianity. Be careful with that. Isaiah says this, Woe to him who warms himself by the fire alone. There's a danger in just making your walk with the Lord a solo thing. You need the accountability of the body of Christ. You need the encouragement of the body of Christ. Sometimes you need the discipline of the body of Christ. He has called us together to be one. And sometimes I see individuals who love the Lord, and they decide to go out on their own and say, oh, I'm doing fine. According to God's definition of fine, you're not doing fine. He has called you to be part of a flock. That's what he's called you to do. So when we say we don't need it, we're going against God. Or I'll see families go their own route. Okay, the body of Christ is supposed to work together. Now, why don't we do that? Do you realize how difficult it is to work with people? I had a pastor heard say one time, he goes, I love being a pastor. It'd be wonderful if it wasn't for the congregation. And there's some truth to that sometimes. Uh, Not for me, I didn't say it, but there's some truth to that sometimes. It's hard to be a body of Christ. We disagree with each other sometimes. Sometimes very passionately we disagree with each other. Sometimes it hurts us. Sometimes we've been wronged. You name it. Sometimes we're just flat out lazy. But the Lord has said, I have called you to be a sheep. And sheep is both singular and plural at the same time. I've called you to be part of a flock. And that's where the real power comes. If you look here in the book of Acts, them being one, united together in a purpose for eternity, is also part of that system they had that gave them a drive. Not this individual thing. So please remember that. You're going to see this repeated, repeatedly repeatedly. The idea of one accord. Now, it happens on the day of Pentecost. I think this is important. Alan, can you put that slide up here real quick? When you see something off the day of Pentecost, sometimes your mind kind of shuts down. I don't know what the day of Pentecost is. You need to understand a little bit of the Jewish background of this. Because this Bible was written, obviously, with a lot of the Jewish ideas in mind. Your Savior, your Messiah, was Jewish. So with that being said, please remember these things. Day of Pentecost happened 50 days. 50 days after when Jesus died on the cross. So what you have here is the first feast is called the feast of Passover. That happened when Christ died. 1 Corinthians 5.7 makes it clear that he was our Passover lamb. So that's the first Jewish feast was Passover. Immediately following Passover is the feast of unleavened bread. Now according to the same verse, 1 Corinthians 5.7, that's supposed to show our new life, our new walk we have in Christ. In the Bible, leaven represents sin. So since leaven represents sin, unleavened means you're getting all the leaven out of your life, all the sin out of your life. The Jews today, when they get ready to do the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the wife has to go in and glean all the leaven out of her house. And then the husband comes back in and inspects it to make sure that there is no leaven. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread shows a new life in the Lord. After that, it's called the Feast of first fruits, That happens immediately. That's when Jesus rose from the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15 20. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. Now, from a Jewish perspective, first fruits is you're starting the harvest. So you take the first part of your harvest, and in faith, you give it over to the Lord, saying, Lord, I trust that this harvest is going to be blessed in you. So Jesus represents the first fruit, the first resurrection, if you will. And then 50 days later, you're down to Pentecost, which we're celebrating here right now. Pentecost is the celebration of the completion of the Jewish harvest 50 days later. And what have we completed? We've completed everything, and now the church is born. So when you see Day of Pentecost in verse 1, it's easy to kind of skip over that. Don't do that. Get a little bit of an understanding of all these Jewish feasts and what they represent. I tell people all the time, when you read the Old Testament, just look for Jesus. When you look for Jesus in the Old Testament, the Old Testament makes sense. When you don't look for Jesus in the Old Testament, it doesn't make sense. So when you read about Passover and unleavened bread, first fruits and Pentecost, and you go back to Leviticus 23 and you're reading that and you're thinking, what am I supposed to get out of this? They're all a picture of Christ. His death, our new walk, his resurrection, and then the church being born. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And I encourage you to really start to get that and to understand that. So when it says in verse 1, the day of Pentecost had fully come, this is not a coincidence. This is not just to happen to fall on the calendar date. This is the reason why it represents the completion of the harvest. It's the completion and the church is ready to be born. Verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Please note how this goes. The first thing you see is this idea of the sound from heaven of a rushing mighty wind. Please note, it's only the sound. It's not the actual wind. That's just fascinating to me. It wasn't that things were blowing all around and it was chaotic and disorder. Corinthians makes it very clear to us, our God is not a God of disorder. But it was the sound of this mighty wind coming through. And it sounds like people heard this. Because look at verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. This would have been amazing To be a part of. So the sound comes. So why the sound first? Please remember 2 Corinthians 5, 7. You walk by faith, not by sight. You don't see it sometimes. You've got to trust that it's moving. You've got to trust that it's there. The Holy Spirit is moving and working behind the scenes, even when you can't see it. So after the sound comes, now what's next? The tongues of fire. Now there's the sight. The visible evidence of the Holy Spirit. This should just remind us exactly of what Jesus said. Jump back to Acts 1, verse 5. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this is exactly what's happening here. They already had the Holy Spirit. If you read the end of the book of John, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is something different. This is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is where the Holy Spirit comes upon them, upon them. In Acts 1.8, it says, you shall receive power, and it comes upon you. See, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, the Bible says. You're a child of God. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Then the Holy Spirit is with you, the Bible says. Wherever you go, God is with you. But there's a whole other level that we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is now upon you. Now, what does that look like? Well, verse 4, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled. Now, just to be honest, depending maybe on what type of church you grew up in or came out of, you hear something like this, makes you a little nervous. Okay, so what I'm hearing you, James, okay, I'm, I'm cool with the idea of God living inside of me. I'm a temple. I don't get it, but I get it. But now there's this whole filled with the Holy Spirit thing, and now there's all this. Yeah, there is. And the, really, the only reason why the book of Acts works is because these people were filled with the Holy Spirit. See, you can go out and live your Christian life with the Holy Spirit in you, the Bible says. You can go out and live your Christian life with the Holy Spirit with you. But I'm telling you right now, there's a whole other level of the Holy Spirit being upon you. Some people hear that and say, well, I don't want to get into anything funky. You may not say funky. I say funky. I don't want you to get anything funky either. Let's just be biblical. Let's just be scriptural. Remember what it says in Corinthians, God is not a God of disorder. And I just want to encourage you. Part of what we're doing through Acts is I want to slowly but lovingly hopefully take you out of your comfort zone a little bit. Because we can get really, really content and comfortable. I'm really okay with the hour on a Sunday. I'm really okay with serving one Sunday a month back in the back. And I'm really okay with every now and then mentioning God. I'm asking you to once again go back to what we said at the beginning of this study. If this is all you knew, all you knew of church, you would read this and say, okay, I'm I'm supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm supposed to be so filled with the Holy Spirit that I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life making sure that I'm glorifying God in all that I do and representing Jesus Christ. It's not about me living for myself. It's not about me accomplishing the tasks I want to in life. It's not about me having my little to-do list. It's not about me on my deathbed looking back and saying, oh, look at everything I've done. If that's what you think, I encourage you to go read the book of Ecclesiastes. Because that's what the guy did. He accomplished everything he wanted and there's still an emptiness. It's about you stopping and saying, I have been filled with the Holy Spirit to go represent Jesus Christ and everything I do and everything I say for the glory of God and to impact eternity with what I do. That's all that matters. And the way that's going to happen is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I had a pastor's conference years ago. The pastor's told us, equip the saints, don't whip the saints. I want to equip you with this information, and I want you to pray about it. I want you to seek the Lord on it. And as we go through Acts, I hope we come out of this a deeper, stronger individual and also a deeper, stronger body of Christ. So now they're speaking in these tongues, verse 5. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Real quick, there's called three pilgrimage feasts. If you're a Jewish man back in the New Testament, Old Testament, you would need to go to Jerusalem three times a year for Passover, Pentecost, and also there's something called the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. That's one of the requirements of the law. So Jerusalem is filled with people fulfilling a religious obligation to come. Verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are these not all who speak Galileans? They were fishermen for the most part. And how is it then that we each hear in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in their own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they're all amazed and perplexed saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Man, wouldn't you love to have seen that? And it's not that each of the disciples... Were speaking. They were all speaking and they were all hearing miraculously their native tongue. That, that's amazing. And so I'm sitting here and let's say I speak Arabic and the person sitting here beside me is from Egypt. We're seeing that guy speak, but we're hearing it in our own life. It's an amazing miracle that's going on. This amazing picture. Now, if you've ever done anything with some type of foreign language... You know how this is a, a miracle right here. Miracle. When, when we were going up to Dearborn earlier this or last month, we were going door to door there in Dearborn, and I was one of the gals I was walking with was a uh, young lady from Sudan, and she obviously spoke Arabic. So I'm, as we're walking together, I'm saying, hey, teach me some Arabic. So that way we can go up and speak Arabic. So she, I learned how to basically say hello in Arabic, how are you in Arabic, uh, thank you, and then basically um, goodbye, you know, basic. So there was this guy sitting on his porch by himself, and I thought, all right, I'm going to go drop my Arabic on him. I'm all ready for this. So I go up to him, and so I say in Arabic, hello. And he says, hello back. I say, in Arabic, how are you? I don't know what he said, but he said something. So I gave him the information, and I told him thank you, and then I said goodbye in Arabic, and then he just starts talking to me in Arabic. And I looked at him, and I said, I'm sorry, I I don't know what you're saying. And at that time, he realized my facade. And he just waved me off like that. Uh, The guy that was with us was named Lydia. And I said, Lydia, can you come up here? And so Lydia came up and took over since she spoke Arabic. Now, I took it as a compliment. I thought my Arabic was so good that this guy must have thought. But I don't think it was that way at all. So she comes up, and she starts doing it. And if you've ever done anything with a foreign language, you know how difficult it is to say it in English And then someone repeats it in a different language, then they have to hear, and it's this long process. It's very difficult, it really is, to teach that way, to talk that way, to communicate. And we live in this English dominated society, obviously, to stop and see this. This is amazing. This is God. This is God crossing every cultural barrier, every language barrier. If you want to go a little deeper, this is a brief, tiny moment of the Tower of Babel reversed. It's just an amazing thing. And what are they hearing? Look at what they're hearing. Verse 11, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Ah, so amazing. i love to have seen this, love to have been a part of it. So they're speaking in tongues here. And there's still another idea of tongues, too, that comes up in Corinthians that talks about the tongues of man and the tongues of angels. And so we also believe that there is this, if you read in 1 Corinthians 14, and I encourage you to get some more study into this, that there is an idea of a prayer language of a tongue as well. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about how that prayer language is between you and God in verse 2. Then in verse 4 it talks about how it blesses you. You know, Romans 8 talks about this. If you do not know what to pray or how to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for you, the Bible says. And I encourage you to study that out and understand the blessing of that as well. So what you see here is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. They are filled with it. It is upon them. God is moving and working. And then the problem is you got verse 13. Others mocking said they're full of new wine. I just want to tell you right now, anytime you decide to go deeper in the Lord, some are going to celebrate it and some are going to mock it. That's just what they are. Liz, is Liz here or did she leave already? She was at the 8.30. She must have left. Did she share the verse from Acts 17 when she was talking about the um, prayer booth? Yeah. yeah. that same type of verse. Some want to hear more. Some are going to mock. Some are going to walk away. That's what's going to happen. I've been reading some through Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes makes it clear. Spread your seed in the morning. Spread your seed in the evening. You don't know what's going to grow. Go cast your bread on the water. And it eventually comes back. What you basically do is this. Lord, I don't know whose heart is open. I'm just going to represent you to everybody I run into and be a witness because that's what I'm called to do. Some are going to mock it, and you have to understand that, and you have to accept that. So now here's Peter, and please understand, 50 days before this, this is Peter who was so scared that he ran and hid. This is Peter that denied Jesus three times, just 50 days before this. This is the difference between being filled with the Spirit and not having the Spirit. Peter filled with the Spirit, verse 14. Peter standing up at the eleven raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath; blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's amazing what happens when you're filled with the Spirit 50 days later. Please note that his teaching starts out with Scripture. cannot stress this enough. Get back to God's Word always. Always. If you're in any type of teaching ministry, focus on God's Word. If you're in any type of ministry at all, when you're counseling somebody, you give them Scripture. Don't take this the wrong way. No one needs to know your thoughts or opinions. Your thoughts and opinions do not matter. What matters is God's word. That is what does not return void. That's what cuts into people's lives. That is what matters. Peter, right from the beginning, Scripture backs up what we're doing. This is of the Lord. This is prophetic. And now, in verses 22, 23, and 24, he gives the gospel message in three simple verses. Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. First verse, he introduces them into Jesus' life. His life was special. It was miraculous, as of God. Verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. This miraculous man of God was crucified, his death. Verse 24 whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now I'm going to tell you about his resurrection. Three simple verses. His life, his death, his resurrection. Don't complicate things. Don't complicate things. One of the things that we were doing in that one evangelism class that Betsy was doing, it talks about your one-minute testimony. And and, you know, let the spirit lead. Don't let it be a legalistic thing. But in this fast-paced society we live in, I've noticed most people aren't going to stop and listen to stuff for a while. Can you just simply state what Jesus has done for you in about a minute? And that's exactly what Peter just did. Three simple verses. This miraculous man of God who died and then rose again. The simplicity of the gospel. Don't complicate it. And then, to back it up, guess what Peter does? He goes right back to Scripture because that's the foundation. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus didn't stay dead. His body did not start to decay in death. He rose. Verse 28, you have made known to me the way of life and you will make me full of joy in your presence. What a great message. I'm giving you God's word to tell you what's happening. I'm going to tell you about who Jesus is. And I'm going to go back and confirm it with God's word, the resurrection. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Because David's the one that wrote that. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us this day. David couldn't be talking about himself. He's still dead. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he had raised up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. And his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus didn't say dead. He rose from the dead. And now, take it home. Give them the gospel. Give them the opportunity. Verse 32. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore... Being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see now and here. That's what you just saw, the promise of God. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What an amazing message. Fifty days earlier, this guy's hiding. Fifty days later, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's quoting scriptures left and right. He's proclaiming Jesus. He's standing before these people, boldly proclaiming who Christ is. And he leaves them with, Jesus is Lord and Christ. The response, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, I don't want to step on toes when I say this, but that word cut there is a very interesting word in the Greek. It's only used in this spot. There's other words translated cut in the Bible. There's one like in Hebrews where it talks about how God's word is alive and active, cutting, cutting into us. That word literally means in the Greek, penetrating. God is able to get through all of our junk and our baggage and our emotions to get to the gospel. This word for cut is a much different term. It literally means in verse 37, it hurts. This word hurts. The point is that when Peter gave this message, it hurt these guys. Now, we spend so much time as churches in America not to hurt anybody's feelings because we want you to come back next Sunday. So we try to make it as peaceful and loving as possible. The problem is then you never get to the heart of the matter. You've got to love people enough sometimes to let their heart be cut. Why were these guys cut? 50 days earlier, these guys were all here for the Feast of Passover. Remember, this is a required feast. So 50 days later, they're back. It is quite possible. It is quite probable This may have been the same crowd that yelled crucify him. They would have remembered Jesus just 50 days before. Now all of a sudden, they get it. And guess what? It hurts. Have you ever had that? Where all of a sudden, you get it. I realize what my sin did. How it hurt me. How it hurt my spouse. How it hurt my kids. I I realize now what my actions did. How it hurt my witness. The Bible says it can grieve the Holy Spirit. And you are cut. Now, what are you going to do about it? Well, look what Peter says. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. Wow. Just repent. Repent literally means do a 180. Change the direction. You're heading this way. You can go the complete opposite direction. You repent. That's what you do. Peter didn't say, What should you guys do? I think you guys should feel bad for yourselves. I think you should suffer for a little bit. I think you should do this. That's what we do. Somebody comes up to us and says, I'm sorry. And we say things like, I know you're sorry. You should be sorry. What did Peter do? Repent. Change. Do a 180. If you are here this morning and you are cut and you realize the wrongness of your life, repent. Do a 180. Change. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Remember, baptism shows the outward sign of an inward change. Baptism is not salvation. That's not what we preach. That's not what the Bible teaches. But baptism is important. We're doing a baptism coming up here, September 10th. So what happens is you have now changed on the inside. You have now had an inward change. You've repented. You've changed what you thought about who Jesus was, the Messiah. So now go get publicly baptized to show the world your change. And guess what you get? You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What an amazing message. Man, filled with the Holy Spirit, and you see the difference. The difference. This takes us to verse 40. And we're not going to get into verses 40 through 47 today. That's our teaching for next week. But I do want to read it right here because I want you to stop and see what did the church do? when these amazing changes start to happen. Please remember, as we go through 40 and 47, if you knew nothing about church, and you were just truly going by what the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and the Epistles said, this is what the Lord would want to look like for a church. I understand there's some cultural things in here about the temple, but this is the overall theme. Verse 40, And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Look what they did. Continued steadfastly Fastly, And the apostles' doctrine, God's word, fellowship. And we're going to talk about what fellowship means next week. Fellowship is just not hanging out with believers. It carries a deeper meaning. Breaking of bread, breaking of bread is communion, which we're going to do here in a little bit. and It's also meals. And in prayer. Then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The Lord moved and worked because the body was willing to have the Lord move and work. Now all who believed were together and they had all things in common. There's a oneness We're not these little island Christians. We're not these little, I'll see you Sunday and I'll see you next Sunday. And then we think we have a relationship with each other. There's a depth to this relationship. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord. There's our word again. Third time already. God is trying to make this clear to us. This oneness. What does it look like? In the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I love it. Absolutely love it. And that's what we're going to get into next week. I thought it was important for us to end with communion today.